Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The U.S. is advising its citizens to reconsider plans to travel to Canada. The Canadian Medical Association says a provincial vaccine passport won't work as well as a federal vaccine passport. We are seeing a lot of angry people on the campaign trail from either side of the political spectrum. Afghanistan is on its own. What's next? Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I just got back from my first high school football practice. I'm so tired, I can barely see. Where's the microphone? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I can tell. <laughs> Nothing like the adolescents playing football. <clears throat> uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, get back at the station, keeping us between the pipes. You can jump into the fun. It's easy to do so. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the window's open. Can you hear the cicadas? 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 What are they called? Uh, as well. No, that's crickets. It's light out. That's next week. All right. The daily trend of COVID-19 cases in Ontario, uh, uncomfortably familiar, although, again, we have to focus on the hospitals and the ICUs, as uh, the majority of us are uh, fully vaccinated. And also, uh, a new variant. Mm, I know. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at School uh, School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, indeed, Scott. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, let's start with the borders and, and your thoughts on uh, what has come out from, I believe, the Center for Disease Control yesterday, saying that uh, uh, for Americans to reconsider travel uh, to Canada, that uh, cases are up, and if it's for non-essential uh, reasons uh, to reconsider doing so. Your thoughts on this, Tim? <laughs> I think they need to look in their own backyard first. <laughs> in the raging dumpster fire that's going on in Florida and Dakotas and places like that. I think this is it's a little strange uh, wisdom going out, going on there. It is uh, again. Americans have to be fully vaccinated in order to come across the border here. We know that the uh, Canadian border is open to Americans. However, they have not reciprocated. Their border is still closed. The land border is still closed uh, to Canadians. Uh, are you confident with Americans that are coming over being fully vaccinated that we're fine? Well, it's it's certainly better than uh, not having them fully vaccinated. And I think it, if, if it works one way, it's going to work the other way. I mean, if yeah. Americans are going to come here and then they're going to go back again, what's the difference between the Canadians going there and then coming back here? It's almost the same uh, same game. But as long as you get, uh, I think, vaccination would be uh, one thing, and uh, ideally uh, vaccination plus a rapid test to the border, at least that, I think. And it could be, be done both ways. But certainly in the past, or even in the uh, last year and a half, we've had a lot of instances where travel 
from hot 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 uh, places have really introduced a variant into a place where there wasn't before. So it is a, a good thing to keep keep an eye on that even now, especially with the new variants coming along. And as you just mentioned in your in your piece at the top there, we've got uh, uh, a lot, I counted a week ago we had 19 variants, 19 of them. And this uh, the new one, the C12, is probably the number 20 on my list. And, you, and by the way, I don't know whether you realize that the uh, committee that uh, named these things is already saying, what do we do after the Greek alphabet? The Greek alphabet's only got 24 characters in it. We're huh. at 20 now. So they're going to be looking at, uh, at uh, constellations and stars. They've got the, a whole pile of those lined up. What do you think, uh, getting back to the border scenario, what do you think Americans' view of Canadians letting Americans up here? Are, you know, are they upset that, um, that we're not keeping it close, too? Again, we all thought there would be a lot more synergy on this. Well, yeah, and I think if you look more closely, uh, you'll see a big regional difference. I mean, there's places in Canada where we really don't see much of an increase at all in Maritimes. Uh, much of the Maritimes are doing an excellent job still. Uh, and you know, there's, now there's places, uh, Alberta, I did a quick calculation there, and that's something like five or six times the rate that we have in Ontario at the moment, if you take the, the population into account. Uh, Saskatchewan, just uh, today, are beginning to see those numbers increase enormously. So regional differences make a difference there as well, sure. So uh, I, I think that's something that we, should, we sometimes miss when we look at a whole country versus another country. The virus doesn't look at a border at all. It just looks at different groups of people who are behaving uh, perhaps not well. <laughs> Um, it just seems odd, and you know we've had this discussion many times that uh, air traffic continues, but let, yet land borders are closed. Now, I guess we can assume that there's probably more crossing by land than air, but still, it just seems bizarre to have such restrictions on the land yet not in the air. I agree absolutely, and this is where we we failed all the way through to use rapid testing properly. You know, we 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 spoke. You and I spoke about the about the seven million of these tests that were apparently purchased and then stored in warehouses or something. And I still only see a matter of you know a, a fraction of that has been used. This is the time to bring in rapid testing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's a wonderful thing. Institutions should have been doing it from the beginning. Airlines should have been doing it. Border controls. The thing only takes about 15 minutes, and you in doubt of somebody's health, you can give them a, a quick rapid test. No problem with that at all. That should have been done long ago. Lots of chatter, obviously, about uh, vaccine passports and, and lots of pressure to uh, on politicians and, and local leaders to get those done. The, pro- uh, the Prime Minister has even offered money to the provinces, uh, yet the Canadian Medical Association, who are, we're having on later today, they, th- you know, they say, like, this is all down the wrong path. We're going to get a patchwork of stuff. And when we're talking about borders and travel, this all has to be linked to your uh, travel passport, if you have one anyway. Yeah, so should this be something that's done on a federal level? If the federal government's giving money to the provinces, why not just do one system for all of us? Uh, Scott, you, uh, I'll give you a big megaphone. You take you up to Ottawa and shout what you just said. <laughs> we are in 2021 in Canada, one of the most uh, technologically advanced countries in the world, still using uh, little yellow cards for vaccination records. Uh, we should by now have a national, at least a national, ideally international, but at least a national uh, vaccination record that that doesn't rely on you remembering whether you were vaccinated for for whatever it was. Uh, this should have been done a long time ago. We're not talking about medical records being on, being released at, at every border. We're talking about vaccination only. 
and uh, th- this is uh, this is way beyond the time for that. So that's one aspect. Uh, the medical people are. are dead on here. We're about three decades out of date in not having a a national record. But let me fall back a little bit on terms of the passport. Uh, I think this is a good example. We're missing this point, I think. Right right from the very beginning, we've seen businesses a little bit digging in the heels and resisting about uh, uh, lockdowns. And we've seen the medical and public health people saying, no, we need lockdowns. Well, this is the first example where everybody is on the same side of the fence. The politicians Mm. are on the middle, either straddling the fence. They're still on the uh, straddling the fence, half of them. But at least we've got businesses wanting passports so they can get back to serving restaurant people again. We're getting public health and medical people saying, yes, we want a passport so we know where, the, where this virus is. So let's do it. Let's get everybody. Well, I don't want to be talking with you a year from now saying, well, we've got rid of uh, wave six. Now we're into wave seven. I mean, how long is this going to go on? Let's stop this thing. But, Timothy, you bring up a very valid point, and I've been hammering this away since the vaccine passport discussion began. Why are we putting so much blame on our provincial governments and not focusing on the federal government to come up with the one system that the medical community is asking for? And and it seems rather than taking this to the federal government, we seem content to take it to our provincial leaders. Yeah, I think this comes back in history. Uh, when I first arrived in Canada, I was uh, somewhat shocked to realize that the provinces have a seniority uh, more than the, uh, the of the federal government. There, there, was, there were provinces were in place before there was a federation, and they still hang on to this for certain areas, and public health is one of them. So we have this patchwork quilt of of provinces who never really talk well with one another, uh, arguing, and it's a turf war half the time, and a, a losing face war as well. We should see this federation beginning to say, look, it, we're, we're, this is a large country, but in the Internet age, it's not a large country, and the virus doesn't matter how big it is, it's just simply going to spread. Let's get these decisions made at a federal level, one decision properly made, applied to everybody, and we'll be much better off. Uh, let's talk about that new variant, C12. Uh, what can you tell us about that? How much of a concern is it? It's a hot uh, uh, moving uh, item in South Africa at the moment. It's in all nine uh, uh, municipal regions of South Africa. Uh, we don't know much about it at the moment. It hasn't been given a Greek name yet. It's, if anything, it's going to be on the sidelines, people watching it. It hasn't joined the variants of interest and certainly hasn't joined the variants of concern groups. There's only still four in, in both of those categories. So we'll keep an eye on it. There was another one about a week and a half ago we're still looking at. And, uh, and as I said, there's, on my list, there's 20 altogether now. So we'll just keep an Remember now, we've been lucky so far. All the variants that have come along and have caused their, uh, caused their uh, mayhap uh, and havoc generally have all been had one real characteristic, and that is that they spread more effectively. And that's bad enough. But fortunately, they haven't uh, done the other two uh, problems, uh, had the other two problems. One of them is that they are more pathologically dangerous, and that the other is that they evade the vaccines. We've seen a little of that around the fringe, but basically they've just been spreading more rapidly. That's not to say that a new variant that comes along won't also tick off one or both of those other boxes. 
and we've really got to watch out in that sense. What what if a variant comes along and, and it says that you're in my vaccine and now not really very good at all? You've got to get the whole vaccine started from the beginning. Or that it, instead of causing, uh, you know, 1% deaths and some hospitalization, it causes, uh, as, as SARS-1 was, about 10%, or MERS was, which is about 33%. We don't want that ad to happen. It goes back yeah. to square one again. Are the drug companies currently working on adapting their current uh, vaccine uh, portfolio to include these new variants? How, how does that work? My understanding is that the mRNA vaccines uh, are doing that and they'll keep an eye on the new variants and they're sort of adapting that into the new batches that they come along. That's easy to do because they don't have to start all of those uh, phase testing again because the essential thing is done. They're just tweaking which bit of RNA that goes in there. The other ones, the AstraZeneca uh, and Johnson Johnson, they are a little bit different. They're, 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 they've got to get all the different kind of vi- uh, virus and the denovirus, uh, and they've got to use, put the put the COVID uh, spike protein in that one. So that may be a little bit more difficult to adjust. But my understanding is that yes, and they have to be doing that all the way through. Much like influenza uh, vaccines are adjusted, adapted each year for the right. following uh, uh, season. What are your concerns as we find out, discover more about these new variants? Is that uh, they always appear where there's a hotbed of viral replication going on. And that means that our priority that we seem to somehow missed when we're talking about what's happening in Ontario or Canada, a real priority is to get the rest of the world where all this this replication is going on, get them vaccinated. Because as long as there's areas of the world where it's still happening, uh, we will see yet more and more variants coming along. As you said, some of them may not be just more effective at uh, at distribution. They may be more dangerous to begin with. What are vaccination rates like in places like South Africa where this variant uh, of concern is? They've uh, they sent one lot of vaccines back simply because the one they were dealing with at the time, the 135, that's right, that one wasn't very responsive to the vaccine they had on hand, which is AstraZeneca. So they said, no, send it back. We'll wait for another lot of vaccines. They've, they've updated their vaccination quite a bit, but they're nowhere near what we are in Canada. Canada's one of the leading countries now. It's not something I would have expected even six months ago, but we are. In other parts of the world, many of the African states, they've got between 1% and 2% of the people vaccinated. I mean, there's essentially none in terms of from the virus's perspective. And as long as you see that, we will see more and more variants coming along. Um, booster shots or the rest of the world first? How do you balance that? That's a difficult one, Scott. I think uh, the best best approach is to say for the people who really are uh, vulnerable, in other words, the aged, because their immune systems don't respond very well, and the people who are on various immunosuppressive therapy or other conditions as well, yeah, a, a booster shot with those, I think, is near the top of the list. But for the rest of us, let's get the double you see, here we are in Canada. We're looking at an overall population of about 70, sorry, 65, 67%. Not just the eligibles, but the whole population. We've got to get that uh, 67% up to about 84% before we see a herd immunity. But we're pretty close. Other parts of the world, it's just rattling straight on. So we've got to start slowing that down in other areas. So we shouldn't see any batches of vaccine going to waste. I mean, that that's an awful somebody's really made a bad mistake there let's get the let's get it spread let's get production done and that's uh, maybe if it takes uh, 
not having to hang on to patents and, and copyrights. Let's have it freely available. Let's get all the countries making this stuff if they can possibly do it. And get it. It's in humanity's interest at the moment. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, uh, professor of school of population and public health, Ryerson University. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Stay well. My pleasure, Scott. Here is today's daily commentary. It looks like the Doug Ford conservatives are listening to the hysteria and revealing some sort of vaccine passport or accreditation or pass, whatever you want to call it. Although why this isn't being done at the federal level to include your real travel passport, instead choosing a piecemeal approach from province to province is beyond me. Personally, I don't care. I'm fully vaccinated. I get it. A vaccine card can keep the messaging consistent and better protect from forgery. Sure it can. But if the prime minister is going to offer provinces money to pay for this redundancy, why not just have one system across the whole country that does it all instead of leaving this to the provinces, which are basically doing the same thing, albeit taking a different journey to get there? Some say a vaccine passport will keep businesses open. No, more people becoming vaccinated will do that. And that takes education. What remains to be seen is if repackaging up the vaccine health information you already have on your phone from your vaccinator has any more superpower when it becomes a provincial passport. And more importantly, will that convince anyone who is not vaccinated to get one because the card or piece of paper or now app is now different? With vaccine, either you're in or you're out. And no passport is going to change what we already have, just make it more convenient. The answer is education, not trickery with the terminology. I'm Scott Thompson. I want to read you something from the Canadian Medical Association, a release they've uh, put out. While the Canadian Medical Association welcomes recent rec- uh, recommend, uh, sorry. While the Canadian Medical Association welcomes recent commitments to advance vaccine certificate systems across the country, we are concerned that the current uh, patchwork of initiatives is leading to inconsistency and confusion. The CMA is urging all governments to make the necessary commitments to ensure current and future vaccine certificate programs are interoperable across all jurisdictions. This will optimize privacy and address potential, uh, potential barriers that may lead to inequitable access quote in the absence of a consistent federal approach to vaccine certification a patchwork has emerged across the country leading to confusion and inequities uh, says dr kathleen smart or sorry Catherine smart who is the president of the canadian medical association dr Catherine smart is with us now doctor thanks for the time i hope you're doing well i am thank you uh, I've had this discussion, man, for weeks now, and it's been pretty frustrating uh, simply because we get caught up in the politics of this as opposed to a really efficient system uh, that will work for us. Um, lots of chatter about provincial passports. Why are we not seeing as much question, as much discussion, debate about a federal system, which we're going to need anyway in order to travel? Yeah, well, I think you've highlighted, you know, one of the challenges of the healthcare system that we have, which is funded largely by the federal government, but administered at the provincial level. And that really leaves us vulnerable in these situations to these patchwork approaches and lack of consistency across provinces, because I totally agree with you. Having one Canadian vaccine certificate slash passport, whatever you prefer to call it, 
that all Canadians could use would be much more efficient and it would just get us over that hurdle much quicker. Are we using the provincial, and you know, you just described what the issues are between a split uh, provincial and federal system, uh, the feds doling out the money, the provinces decide where it goes, and we can see uh, that and we know the, the discussion around that in the past. However, we are in a global pandemic, so this is a little bit of an anomaly. Well, it is an, alarm, an anomaly here. Um, so, you know, is it not a lot easier to just do this? I mean, you know, we can say, well, it's a provincial patchwork, so, you know, there's only so much we can do. But I don't know. Can't the feds just say, here's what we need, here's what we need to do, here's one general system across uh, the board for vaccination, and we'll worry about all of that other stuff later? Well, that's certainly what we're calling for with the statement today, you know, and I think, like you said at the beginning, it's frustrating to Canadians to see these inconsistencies. And I think this has plagued our pandemic response right from the beginning. You know, very different approaches in different provinces and territories, which have led to very different rates of COVID that we're seeing now in this fourth wave. It's going out of control in several provinces that have dropped their public health approaches and other provinces that have been more cautious are doing better. You know, it's it, there's so many inconsistencies and it is very frustrating for a virus that doesn't really care where you live and doesn't respect provincial boundaries. Uh, we have even seen the prime minister offer money to the provinces to get set up their own provincial system, which again seems odd. Would that money not be better spent having a singular system, which is consistent across the country? That would definitely be our preference. I think it makes sense to have one system that works well, that's, interoperable that's predictable it's likely to also have much better privacy standards Um, so that's definitely the direction we think we should be going how concerned are you that the politics has taken over this discussion i'm very concerned i think we're seeing a lot of politics right now in this fourth wave i mean arguably so much of what's happening right now is totally preventable if we were seeing more leadership around continuing public health mitigation strategies, masking, improving ventilation, the things we know work, and putting things like certificates and mandates in place to drive up vaccination rates. If we had political consistency with that science-based decision-making, we would not be in the situation we're in right now. How much weight does this position from the Canadian Medical Association do you think have not only with citizens but with leaders? I mean, obviously the Canadian Medical Association represents uh, the community across the country. Uh, And as far as I know, really, you're the first organization to come out and really say we need uh, a consistent federal system as opposed to inconsistency and patchwork. Uh, Do you think this is going to resonate with Canadians and leaders? I hope it does. I mean, I think it's clear that over 80% of Canadians support the idea of vaccine certificates. People see that this is what needs to happen. I think all of us feel the same, right? We want to move forward with our lives. We don't want to go back into lockdowns. We want our kids to be able to be back in school and be safe this fall. And it's pretty clear that certificates are an effective tool for driving up rates of vaccination and limiting exposures uh, for vulnerable people to unvaccinated people. So I think the, the will of the people is there. The real barrier here is, is the politics, as you've mentioned. And part of our job is to really try to come out as the voice of physicians to say, this is the science. These are the facts and counter the misinformation that I think is driving so much vaccine hesitancy in this wave of the pandemic. 
uh, a, a lot of people a lot of people are putting a lot of weight in hoping a vaccine passport does uh, convince more people to get vaccinated. Again, we're seeing uh, the the uh, the restrictions coming out anyway before any of these vaccine passports are even available uh, to the public. Uh, do you think that uh, the Canadians are realizing that this is something that that should be done at a federal level as opposed to the provincial level? I think most Canadians probably want to see efficiency and to see consistency. You know, I think it's it's frustrating when you look at your neighbour on either side of where you live, your province next door, and see a totally different approach. And I think for something like this, which is a document, it makes sense that there would be one version of it and it would be led federally to say, okay, guys, here's the tool, roll it out. What about even, and I know a lot of people are, are concerned about security, and, and it's been said that you can do this, exactly what you're talking about, and just have vaccination records on it. But you can see how this wouldn't be so much more efficient to do it with health records, period. Oh, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Sure is about online access to people's records, you know, which can be very positive experience for patients who then have access to their medical information, which can be a real barrier in accessing their care. So I think you know, that's an ongoing conversation that we're going to see. But certainly an issue like this, a vaccine certificate, is really quite straightforward uh, and really is something that we should be seeing in action now. Uh, do you think we could see a change of direction here? I mean, we're now waiting. Uh, there's uh, uh, rumors floating around that Ontario is going to move forward with some sort of vaccine uh, passport. Obviously, you know, listening to to uh, w- what you guys are and 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 what the majority of people want, in, in not only in the province but in Canada. Uh, and now we're hearing that Ontario is going to, in fact, come out with one. We were supposed to hear something today, but now we're talking about tomorrow. Uh, do you think that this will put more emphasis on a federal situation that, you know, can we convince these provinces that, you know, this is not the way to go, uh, although it may work for you politically, uh, that really a federal system is the way to go? I think hopefully as more provinces realize that this is an effective tool to protect their population, there'll be more willingness to get on board and make decisions that are actually driven by what's in the best interest of people and the science rather than the politics. And you have to think, you know, uh, every province would probably rather, you know, wouldn't there be more advantages to doing it on a federal level as opposed to letting them do it uh, with their own resources uh, amongst themselves? Well, you would certainly think so, wouldn't you? You know, why reinvent the wheel multiple times when you're talking about something that's essentially going to be a smartphone app you know, let's make one and make a good one and everyone can use it. And then you don't have the issue if people move, you know, across the country. They've got one tool, it's there. Um, and I just think that makes a lot more sense. Uh, we certainly remember with the COVID-19 app that we were asked to to put on our phones, didn't get a lot of uptake. I, I loaded it up on mine and, and, and never got a, a buzz from it. As a matter of fact, we were talking to Dr. Bogosh, uh, earlier uh, earlier on in the week and he said he had it loaded up and was wandering through uh, through the ICU all the time and, and it never went off um, are you concerned that you know there's lots of chatter about a vaccine passport but at the end of the day there'll only be a few that, that that jump on it and we'll be in the same position that we were with the app or is the passport just much more valuable than the app was 
I think they're kind of trying to do two different things. I think, you know, the uptake of something like the vaccine certificate will really depend on what it enables you to do. You know, in provinces like BC, where they're saying, look, if you don't have the certificate, you aren't going to be able to do those parts of life we enjoy, going to the movie, a concert, out for dinner. Then I think if that's what's linked to it, you're going to see people uptaking that that technology because they're going to need it to engage in their life. The other thing we know, right, is vaccine uptake has really leveled out in people under 40, which already had the lowest rates of vaccination of Canadians. And that's right now the age group where the pandemic is is thriving and going out of control. So I think that's also the group of people that enjoy those social interactions. So I think this is a way to motivate people to realize, you know, we have to balance our individual freedoms with the safety of our communities. And being vaccinated and having something like a certificate program is a way to send that message. Uh, I, I've told this story many times uh, on the on the air. Uh, obviously, I'm fully vaccinated. I've got my information on my phone that I need, and I've had to use that twice, uh, once going to a doctor's office for my own appointment, and then once to get into a long-term care facility to see my mother. So I used what was sent to me from uh, the government and the pharmacy. Um, that now works as a passport. Will an actual passport convince people that somehow it has more power and that it will, uh, again, convince more people to get vaccinated? Do you think that it will actually do that? Well, I think we know that it does do that. You know, since BCA made its announcement, first dose appointments have tripled. In Quebec, first dose appointments went up by over 50% once they made their announcement. And during that same period, what we saw is vaccination appointments in Ontario went flat. And in Alberta, they actually went down by 3%. So we are already seeing the impact of these certificate announcements in terms of motivating people to become vaccinated. Don't we already have the vaccine certificate, though, on our phone? Be, uh, that we got from when we were when we were vaccinated and obviously you know there's some issues there about security and obviously convenience but if people aren't going to get that document why would they go and get the other one i think again it's going to be how it links to what you're able to do and yeah. what is happening in different locations and then also as you've discussed you know the privacy of it and also the the safety of it right so like you know where i live the jurisdiction i'm in it's just a piece of paper that's what we have right now well that's an easy thing to counterfeit what we're really wanting is something that's reliable interoperable and then can be tied to access and that's what's going to motivate people to actually use the certificate is it less about the document and more about the privilege I think it's absolutely about the privilege. I think yeah. what we're saying is we want to tie being vaccinated to being able to fully participate in the social life of a community because we know that's the safest. So I think that's a key part of that. Um, and, and then, of course, having a reliable certificate is a way to actually take that into action. Uh, any response from the provinces uh, or the federal government on the CMA's position that this should be uh, one certificate across the country and a federal a federal responsibility? Any feedback from government on this yet? Well, we've just come out with our statement today, uh, so we haven't had any direct feedback yet. But we certainly welcome those conversations and would be happy to engage with anyone about why this makes sense and how we can best move ahead.
Where do you think this is going to go? Ultimately, where is this going to end up? Or will we still be talking about this, say, two months from now? I hope not. Um, I, I would like to see more alignment as we move along. You know, you'd think at this point in the pandemic, we would be seeing more consistency. My concern is as we enter the fourth wave, we're perhaps seeing more diversity in approach than we've ever seen before, which is really concerning. And I think it is what is going to hold Canada back from really moving out and through the end game of this pandemic. All right, Dr. Catherine Smart with us, President Canadian Medical Association. Catherine, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. Stay safe. You're more, you're more than welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Honestly, we don't know in this election at this point what people are going to be making that final voting decision on. Some elections have very clear ballot box questions going in. This one didn't. The Liberals are saying it's about choice and who people want to lead them through the pandemic recovery. Uh, The Conservatives have pushed that same message. Whether or not that's how voters are choosing remains to be the big question. Because while that was the planned issue, what ended up really dominating the first few weeks of the campaign is the uh, messy withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, the discussions about political wedge issues like mandatory vaccines. Um, and of course, as they are traveling across Canada, the pandemic. That is Mercedes Stevenson, uh, Global News, Ottawa reporter. Uh, all right, let's bring in Daniel Ballon, James McGill, Professor, Political Science Director of the McGill Institute of Study of Canada within McGill University and is with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, and you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much. Uh, sunny ways have turned a little cloudy for the prime minister. What is the difference between uh, the first and second campaign and this campaign for the prime minister? Well, I think the first campaign was great because, uh, you know, uh, the Justin Trudeau was a kind of a, uh, relatively fresh, you know, figure, someone who had become leader only two years before and created a surprise really by... Uh, by helping the, the Liberals win a majority government. So that was a, a really dramatic uh, campaign in 2015. 2019, which uh, was not so sunny for the Liberals, they ended up with a strong uh, minority government, uh, 157 seats. And so they, they had a, you know, a, 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 they had a strong minority government. They only needed support from one opposition party at the time. And despite this, uh, the prime minister decided to go to see the governor general on August 15 to uh, recommend that she dissolves parliament. And so now we are in this uh, campaign uh, that started the day Kabul fell. So I think that the timing uh, is not good uh, for, for the liberals. Uh, what, what, happened, uh, what has happened? happened in, uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan, of course, and the fact that the, Justin Trudeau, the Liberal Party leader, also has to put his hat as Prime Minister because he's still Prime Minister to deal with the, the situation in Afghanistan and face criticisms about how his government has handled that. Also, you have, of course, the ongoing pandemic that you just alluded to uh, in your comments, and, um, and, and I think a lot of questions about whether we, uh, we needed this election. I think most people <laughs> agree that we didn't. Uh, that was a political move on the part of, of the Liberals. That was a, a gamble. I said that before the campaign many times uh, in different interviews. And, and I, I think it's proving to be a really risky gamble for the, the Liberals. It's not over yet, but the Conservatives are now ahead in the polls. And in some of the seat projections, 
have seen. So I think now the liberals are in, um, uh, I think, in uh, uh, crisis mode, panic mode, and uh, they need to unveil their platform because the fact that all the other major parties have a platform and they unveil their platform early on, the NDP before the beginning of the campaign, the conservatives during the, the first week, the bloc, uh, the, exactly a week after the beginning of the campaign, the fact that the Liberals still don't have a platform uh, uh, raises a lot of questions. And, and now the Prime Minister is saying, oh, it's coming out soon, it's coming out soon. But I think uh, it's still time for them to, uh, I think, uh, play catch-up. Uh, the debates might help or might not. And, and we'll see, we have the TVA debate later this week in French, then the, the two official French and English debates. Um, so it's not too late for the liberals, but uh, it's not looking very good for them right now. Can they use the same sort of sunny ways, uh, tone and aura that they did uh, initially? It seems that uh, the prime minister is uh, a little bit more negative, a little bit more aggressive uh, this time out. Yeah, you know, the sunny ways that work well for when you're um, in a way, you know, the liberals were in third place at the beginning of the campaign in 2015. Trudeau was, uh, was a new and shiny uh, party leader. <laughs> but, you know, uh, his aura has suffered quite a bit uh, um, uh, over the last six years. And I think that it's, you can't just reuse the same line. Or, and people are not so optimistic right now because of the pandemic and all that. So you have to reassure people uh, and to show uh, strong leadership. But but I think the, today talking about sunny ways will, will sound a bit naive anyway. Uh, the, obviously, we've seen uh, a lot of uh, protesting along the campaign trail for the prime minister, uh, heckling and such. Uh, one event last week uh, canceled because of security concerns. Um, the prime minister is, is sort of trying to paint the protesters or paint the conservatives as being uh, the protesters. And, and the more we find out about them, they're very well organized. They cross many ideologies uh, and, and many political extremes as well as geography. Uh, how is this faring? Will this work to his advantage, sort of playing the victim in, here, in this? Yeah, absolutely, he could. If these protests become violent, because we've seen they are not, you know, uh, what we saw in Bolton, uh, uh, some of it look more like a, a mob than, than, than a peaceful protest. So it's, of course, it's just people who are the fringe of the political spectrum, who are the most vocal and carry these signs with, you know, uh, an image of the prime minister with the news around his neck or info war signs and all things we've seen. Uh, this is the kind of, you know, rhetoric that uh, we, we've seen uh, really exploding in the United States under, under Trump, and, and we have that in Canada, and we saw that in Europe, too, with the yellow vesters. So it's not entirely new, but I think the pandemic has exacerbated that. And uh, uh, quite a few of the people we've seen protesting at these uh, liberal rallies were anti-lockdown, anti-vaccination passport slash mandate uh, folks. And, and I think it's, it's, it's absolutely legitimate to raise uh, questions about mandates and passports, something you, you talk about earlier in this program. I think people should debate these uh, issues, and, uh, and it's important to do so, but we have to do it in a civil way. And people who fall into conspiracy theories and you think that the pandemic was just like a, it's just an excuse to limit uh, people's freedoms and it's part of a, a global conspiracy, I think that these people should not monopolize the, this discussion because there are some very important issues at stake. And the prime minister, if he's attacked 
by, by people who are really on the fringe of the political spectrum, say on the far right, uh, then he can use that against the conservatives if, for example, a few of their uh, supporters are identified in the crowd, which is what happened, I think, in Bolton, Ontario, on Friday, and then the, the local conservative candidate uh, he had to disavow these conservative supporters, and, and Erin O'Toole, I think, came really strongly uh, against this type of very negative and hateful rhetoric that we saw in Bolton and at some other protests. So I think Erin O'Toole is a bit on the defensive about this, uh, but I think uh, that he's right to condemn that, and Jack Singh is doing the same thing. Only in Quebec, uh, Yves-François Blanchet has basically blamed the prime minister for what's happening, saying that it's because he's so cocky, so arrogant. Uh, but I think that Blanchet here uh, um, uh, really uh, made a mistake because it might actually turn against him. Um, many are, well, and certainly the prime minister is painting this as the alt-right. As we dig down deeper into this, we find, as you pointed out, it's extremes on both sides of this uh, equation because they're denouncing Doug Ford and Aaron O'Toole or Jugmeet Singh as well. Uh, but that doesn't make the headlines. So uh, how do we differentiate between extreme anarchists, uh, anarchists on both sides and the prime minister trying to paint them as all right wing? Because that's not the case here. Yeah, it, it's a complicated story. You know, we, we saw a similar protest again during the pandemic, not during the federal campaign, but before that, even in Alberta, people, you know, screaming at Jason Kenney and insulting him. Even Jason Kenney, who's really conservative. He's a conservative yeah. premier, right? So I think that it's when there some people, at the, especially at the, the fringe, as I said, they just don't trust government in general. And yeah. they don't, and they, are, they go against the person who's in power. So the prime minister or the premier, even if it's a conservative or a liberal or NDP premier, like in, in BC, they, they will attack the, the, you know, the, the person in charge especially if they, um, they don't agree with, uh, with sanitary policies, uh, uh, any type of vaccination passport and mandate. But before that, it was about mask mandates that they protested, right? Um, and I think there, there is the people who are on the fringe, they don't, they don't trust government, they don't trust science, and of course, they also tend to buy into conspiracy theories, which are widely available on the internet, on social media especially. So I think that, um, you know, we have to distinguish... Uh, between these people who are, again, uh, um, uh, part of a kind of a extreme uh, faction and group and the legitimate concerns of citizens um, who uh, may have uh, issues about uh, the way we are uh, proceeding regarding uh, vaccination mandates or passports, because there are issues of personal freedom and, and, and privacy as well in, in case of the passports that, that we, we should take seriously. It just seems that the prime minister is is trying to paint one party with this, uh, and, and they're the extremists as if there's no none on the other side. When the headline in the Globe and Mail today is racism, transphobia, uh, transphobia, big problems in the Green Party. Eternal report says the first paragraph: racism and transphobia, uh, transphobia are significant problems within the National Green Party that the organization has failed to effective, uh, effectively manage. There is systemic racism at the governance level of the party, which needs to be, uh, but is not being addressed. The port, uh, the report says so. 
you know, again, there's the extreme left, there's the Green Party, and, you know, uh, th- that headline would suggest, it doesn't, but, you know, others could could say, well, geez, it's only the right that feels this way. And, and the fact is, we've got a segment of the population that's incredibly happy, unhappy with the Prime Minister, and they're not just all from the right. No, and uh, yes, I mean, anti- historically, actually, anti-vaxxers were more on the, the far left, in a way, and the... So, so, um, absolutely, but nobody yeah, talks about that. Instead, they changed, point to so the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it has changed, and now it's, you, you have uh, people on the far right who also have embraced that for different reasons. Um, but, but I think it's uh, uh, because the pandemic is such a central issue in the campaign. It, it, is, it is political, obviously, even if the prime minister would say, well, I'm above this, I'm with, the, the, with science. I think I think it's um, you know there are legitimate issues that are being raised, but protesters who um, you know uh, are really act like a mob, they actually they might they might help Trudeau, right? That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, is that yeah. this this is if you make him look like a victim, people might be sympathetic and say, you know, I have some issues with some of these measures, but I'm not, you know. Uh, uh, uttering death threats against the prime minister <laughs> or uttering racist and sexist slurs, which we heard during these protests. So again, it's the way people protest. There's nothing wrong about protesting during a campaign, but it could backfire for people who actually organize. They can actually just, uh, um, you know, help the people they, they attack. Is the prime minister, albeit very subtly and quietly, a divisive man? I mean, you know, and this is my feeling. It's my way of the highway. You talked about the liberal arrogance, uh, whether it's indigenous rights, whether it's climate change, and now even gender. It seems that this prime minister is putting us on different teams. Is that accurate? Is he a divisive prime minister? Well, I think it's his, there is a moral aspect to his rhetoric. So there is, you know, it's so so this kind of more moralistic approach can 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 act as a trigger for people who don't agree with him. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, so I think the, the issue is that some people feel that there's the sense of moral superiority, right? Yeah. Uh, um, and, and, and that's something that, um, you know, is not only Trudeau, but it's sometimes his rhetoric can, can certainly um, uh, trigger some people. But that's not a reason to utter death threats against him or to, you know, so I think that that's, we, we have to understand that um, politics is about divisions, right? It's, that's why we have political parties. And, and, you know, there are people who also uh, very much dislike uh, what Erin O'Toole is saying and find him divisive, right? Or, or, or Jack Mead Singh, for that matter. Um, so, so, uh, but because he's the prime minister, it's, it's, um, he has the center stage. And, and people who have grievances about, about government and about uh, what's happening in the world, they tend, they tend to blame the one in power. And it's true that as the prime minister's rhetoric is, can have a, an effect on people, positive or negative. Uh, and there is a polarization that we see, uh, certainly in the context of the pandemic. Uh, I hope that it will not become like in the United States, or we've seen some European countries where um, uh, polarization is, um, is, is becoming... Uh, so central that we can't, you know, have a, a conversation about key policy issues that don't turn into, you know, insults and, and, and screams. But uh, I think all political leaders have a, have a responsibility here to understand that some of the differences out there are um, not necessarily about moral superiority or 
truth and, and falsehood, but that they are about values and, and that they are about different points of view. Some of them are so extreme that they should not be part of the mainstream political discourse on both the far left and the far right, or at least they, um, you know, they should not take so much space, because often they take more space than uh, uh, yeah. they should, because they represent relatively few people on both sides. But mm -hmm. their, their supporters are extremely vocal on social media, and they are the ones who also might be more uh, uh, you know, tempted to, to protest and make a lot of noise. Um, so I think that we have to, uh, uh, to have real conversations beyond the, the, all that, that ideological noise. Let me ask you this, Daniel. Post-COVID-19, coming out of a global pandemic, uh, do people want to be united or divided, especially after this fatigue? Because uh, am I naive to think that they're tired of this? They want unity. They don't want divisiveness. They don't want to be on either team. Yes, I think there is that. And, and, uh, and, and many people don't want a campaign in part because this brings divisiveness. I yeah. mean, the campaign is, is in and of itself necessarily divisive because you have different parties who fight one another to, to, uh, to get more votes. So, so it, uh, and, and, and I think many people are, are anxious about, you know, their kids going back to school, about their work, about the economy, about their health, and so forth, uh, their parents or grandparents who maybe are in, in seniors' homes. And, and you know, the, the, the campaign may, uh, may increase their anxiety, um, and that's probably will, will, will uh, be even stronger after Labor Day or when we have the official uh, uh, party debates on television, because we'll talk even more about politics and about divisions. Because uh, I, I think in the end, um, uh, yes, people uh, uh, crave some sense of, you know, some sense of solidarity or some sense of unity, but at the same time, uh, uh, there is a lot of disagreement out there, and the political campaign is obviously just making that more obvious, because that's what campaigns are about, typically. Daniel Ballon with us, James McGill, Professor of Political Science and Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada with McGill University. Daniel, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, and have a wonderful afternoon. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, it is August 31st, uh, and in other parts of the world, it became August 31st a lot earlier than what it did here. Uh, and as a result, uh, the U.S. is officially out of Afghanistan along with uh, their allies. Uh, here is what uh, Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino had to say. Over the weekend, Canada and its allies received assurances from the Taliban that Afghan citizens with travel authorization from other countries would be allowed to safely leave Afghanistan. We have a clear commitment from the Taliban, and we are going to hold them to it. It goes without saying that things remain extremely volatile, and we take nothing for granted. All right, that is Marco Mendocino, the immigration minister. Uh, let's bring in Aro Brown, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Aro, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. What is it like today in Afghanistan, day one of, uh, I guess, what they're declaring a Taliban victory? Clearly, they are celebrating. They're using every symbol they can to... Uh, project the humiliation and the utter defeat of the United States and its allies. Uh, they marched down the tarmac in front of abandoned uh, 
aircraft that the Americans had provided to the Afghan government and the Afghan Air Force. So these are early days, and uh, uh, this is a time when the Taliban is, in fact, engaging in a charm offensive. So this is, if this is the charming image of the Taliban, one can imagine what uh, may happen later when they begin to implement their policies because they have not changed their core principles. They will repeat time and again that their vision is of a country ruled strictly by the fanatical interpretation of Islam uh, by the Taliban, and the record of the Taliban is an extremely gruesome one. The first thing I noticed, Oral, when I saw those uh, shots yesterday uh, of the airport abandoned was the military equipment that those Taliban soldiers were wearing. Um, and the sophistication of it, and as you mentioned, uh, the equipment that was left behind, uh, 100 vehicles, 73 aircraft. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Um, I'm guessing, obviously, it's easier to, to leave them there than bring them home, but, but how do you explain that? The exit was so chaotic. The Americans had mishandled so badly the Biden administration that there did not seem to be any proper way of evacuating not only all the people they wanted, there are still Americans uh, and other Westerners left, but they certainly could not get all that equipment out. So the American military claims that they have disabled this aircraft, that they will not fly uh, these helicopters and planes, but we don't know uh, whether any of the parts could be used, what could be sold by the Taliban to China and to Russia, who would be very keen to examine the more sophisticated American-built aircraft uh, for their own purposes. So um, there is no really favorable interpretation in this case. The best they can say is, well, at the moment, these uh, aircraft are not able to fly. Uh, again, uh, you know, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. But uh, you know, considering there's uh, seventy three aircraft, couldn't that have been used weeks, months ago to a fly people out, b fly equipment out, and 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 put a dent in this issue that we've seen unfold in the last two weeks? Is this just simply poor intelligence and poor planning, or could this equipment not have been used to evacuate? You are entirely correct that it's very difficult to be sort of the uh, morning quarterback and to now just say, look, this could have been done, that could have been done, uh, because obviously there are operational difficulties, there are tactical considerations. But when we stand back and we ask the question, if we were in uh, Afghanistan, if we were looking at policy months ago, could things logically have been done differently? Were there things that could be foreseen? Was there a kind of writing on the wall? Then nonetheless, we have to come to the conclusion that whether we agree or don't agree with the ultimate decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, the execution was so badly done that this outcome ought not to be surprising. When you abandon the very large Bagram Air Base 
from which there could have been all sorts of evacuation where aircraft could have been used from there, access would be much easier. You are then creating a situation where you're funneling everyone through this much smaller area of the airport in Kabul. It is creating a situation where you become utterly vulnerable to being dependent on the Taliban, and also you become much more vulnerable to attacks by other elements, such as ISIS-K, which is exactly what has happened. So the Biden administration cannot say that this could not have been foreseen. To merely blithely assert that, well, any exit is messy, is not just a kind of useless generalization, but it is a distortion because they were warned and you did not need to be Clausewitz to recognize that this was a miscalculation of the first order. So what about the last 20 years in Afghanistan? Um, is that a failure? Should the occupation have stayed just to monitor this in, in a peacekeeping uh, way? Uh, what about the last 20 years? When we see an American major general uh, being the last person boarding an aircraft leaving, then the mark of defeat is indelible. So one can easily argue that everything was a failure. But perhaps we have to think of the Afghan people. Perhaps we have to think of the millions of women who could work, of the millions of girls who got an education, uh, of the hope that so many people in Afghanistan had for a better society where they went out and actually voted. And can we say that making life better for those people all those years was a failure? So this is why I would think that we should not say that those who fought and tried their best, including Canadians, Canadians who gave their lives, that those lives were lost in vain. We did make a difference, Canadians included. I think uh, the intentions, particularly in the case of Canada, were noble. And I think we have a lot to be proud of, even though ultimately one cannot deny that this was a failure. Was, would it have been possible to have maintained this uh, uh, situation for long enough for democracy or some kind of responsive government to take root? Well, 20 years seems like a long time, but I think we discussed this before, Scott. You know, how long have we collectively the West, particularly United States, have been in South Korea? Yeah. Well, since 19, 1950, how long have we been in Japan, Italy, and elsewhere? It takes a long time to change a political culture. It takes a long time to address uh, corruption. And mistakes were made all around. There is blame uh, uh, that everyone has to assume. No one has been mistake-free. But the last few months were so badly miscalculated in terms of execution by the Biden administration that one cannot avoid uh, saying that the scope of the catastrophe that has occurred uh, would very likely not have been at this level had it not been for that miscalculation. And it's not over because, you know, when we hear uh, Canadian ministers say, well, we are clear about what the Taliban have said, and we are going to hold them to it. Well, how are we going to hold them? To yeah. It? Who's going to hold them to it? 
Um, with um, Afghan now uh, basically uh, a, a rogue nation uh, supposedly governed by the Taliban, uh, this being a cesspool of terrorism, uh, who knows what's going to happen in the next several months, year, what have you. Is it inevitable that we'll be back? The West does not want to go back. Uh, we collectively uh, would like to somehow forget about it. And at one level, we need to understand that it's almost natural and understandable that we feel that we cannot solve everyone's problems around the world, that we cannot rectify all of our own mistakes. But that said, the Taliban may not let us forget, and the Afghan people will not let us forget because turmoil is likely to continue. There is going to be tremendous chaos and deprivation and violence in Afghanistan because that is what happened before, and we see elements of that already. We see that women have become largely invisible on the streets of uh, the cities of uh, Afghanistan. And that, as I noted before, is a very, very bad sign. And there are still many people who, who have passports from the West who are American or French or British nationals, whether they were because... Uh, uh, they were born in France or United States uh, when they were infants who were taken back. And it's going to be very difficult to get those people out. There are terrorist groups that may use Afghanistan as a base. Uh, there will be vast numbers of refugees. We can see that already spilling across the borders. So the problem is not going to go away as much as we would like to forget and to transcend. And so we need to formulate uh, a strategy uh, as to how to deal with this. Yet it is noble of Canada to take in 5,000 extra refugees, those who were evacuated by the United States. I assume they will be carefully vetted because terrorist groups uh, may try to infiltrate some uh, of uh, these groups. Uh, but it is very important that the humane thing to do, and uh, we uh, ought to do it, and we should be proud of this. But it's a very small number. If we are going to have millions of refugees, how is the international system going to cope with that? So what happens now, uh, Oral, to those 1,250 Canadians, uh, or sorry, 1,250 Afghans with ties to Canada who have been left behind? If the troops are gone, who's going to get them out? How are they going to get them out? It seems we are going to be dependent on the goodwill, the whim of the Taliban. To just and let them fly to just let them fly out? The Taliban has made promises, but they have broken promise after promise, including their promise to participate in some kind of coalition transition government, not to take over the whole country, allow for a proper exit. So uh, the word has not meant uh, very much, the word of the the Taliban uh, government, and is it going to be a situation where we will have to basically ransom hostages? And whenever you pay ransom money, you just uh, strengthen terrorist groups and you encourage that kind of activity. And uh, it's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, the promises that these people can come to the airport, that, but we know 
that many people have already been turned away from coming to the airport. We know that the Taliban have said that they will not allow doctors and engineers and those who are deemed by them to be essential workers to exercise their basic human right of leaving the country. They will not allow that. So will some of these people fall in that category? And if we are going to try to get them out, what will we use? I'm, I'm very curious to see this holding the Taliban to it, to their promise, uh, promise to let these people out. I hope uh, we have some mechanisms that uh, we publicly are not uh, aware of, but uh, uh, there's not a great track record of success. Will we still be talking about this, Arl, in a week, two weeks from now? We should be talking about it. In a sense, the danger is if we don't talk about it, because there is that inclination often in the West. We are preoccupied with domestic issues, with immediate concerns. And that is both a strength and a weakness of democracies. It is a strength because we want to take care of our citizens. That is the responsibility of our government. And there are immediate uh, concerns uh, from the very important one dealing with COVID to the more mundane matters of filling potholes. Um, but it is also a weakness because we don't tend to think strategically, and then we are surprised when there are very negative uh, developments internationally that affect us in a very significant way. And what is happening in Afghanistan, which is indeed a, a far-off place, but there is no uh, protection from geography. And so we ought to keep uh, our uh, concern about what is happening in Afghanistan out of nothing else but enlightened self-interest because uh, the problems in Afghanistan are not likely to be limited to that uh, very sad and now terrorized country under the rule of a group that has a terrible record of governance. How do you think this is resonating with Canadians, especially during a pandemic and uh, a, a federal election? Uh, are they uh, are they sympathetic to the cause, or are they saying, or are they feeling fatigue after twenty years? And here's where we are. There's nothing we can do. I, I would not be surprised if there's some fatigue and a sense of helplessness. And if it was just Canada alone, of course we cannot do it by ourselves. But there's a great deal that we can do collectively as democracies. We are a member of the G7, as I keep emphasizing to all, all, the, all the media. Uh, we have a significant international footprint. We can do a great deal if we coordinate in terms of uh, taking action not just against the Taliban, and we have said that publicly, our government, that we want to have sanctions because it is a terrorist group that took power by force, but also we need to deal with Pakistan because they have been instrumental in uh, the victory of the Taliban. We have to deal with China and Russia, which are going to try to take advantage of the situation in Afghanistan and use it for their own geostrategic uh, purposes. So there is a great deal of work to be done. And this is why, despite what may be a natural inclination to try to ignore or at least transcend, uh, it's not going to happen in real time, in real life. 
so we better uh, address these issues uh, because if we don't uh, do it proactively, we will have no choice but to then do it reactively, and that would be much more harmful and much less effective. R.L. Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. The U.S. allies pulled out of Afghanistan day one as uh, uh, day one uh, under the new Taliban, uh, whatever that is, as they move forward. R.L., thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.